You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in today. I have a special guest I'm excited to introduce to you. His name is Coach Seth Thibodeau. But first, before I tell you about him, you may have noticed I've invited quite a few of my successful friends on the show. What I've come to realize is there's a common theme among them, something that I've never quite articulated, but I'm now coming to realize they all have this. Today's guest calls it that starve. Last week's guest called it that dog. So in the last episode, I asked the question of my guest, who's a former Division I athlete. I said, do you ever look around at your peers at work and realize there's something different about you? Something that separates you from them? This is a young man having a lot of early success in his relationships. He's recently engaged. He just landed a high-paying job. Investments are growing. And he said, yes, there is something I notice. We call it that dog. Like he doesn't have that dog in him. There's a lot to be said for developing that dog. I know what he's talking about. Today's guest calls it that starve. The way I describe it is when shit hits fan, when everything you thought you knew about the world is flipped on its head. It's more than just having your back against the wall because you'll have your back against the wall four or five times in life. And that's if you're lucky. Having your back against the wall isn't even that hard. It's when the other three walls are closing in on you then your back is against the wall and it's a problem. But you don't reach some vaunted perch in life from which all your problems disappear. That doesn't happen. You'll always have problems. I don't care who you are or what you've accomplished. That starve, though, that dog, it's reserved for those with a supreme confidence in themselves that they can figure out a way to scale those four walls or they've served enough people in life or otherwise spent time developing relationships so that when their back is against the wall and there's three walls closing in, they have people they can call to help them out of a jam when circumstances feel impossible, or they can engender that starve that they've had that they can dig deep for inside and then brute force their way through one of those four walls. Because you're not going to hold down that dog for long, that starve that's inside a man. It's too powerful. It comes from too deep a place. I'll do it or I'll die. You can't beat that guy. He's going to find a way. I want you young guys to hear what I'm saying. College ball players, aspiring ball players, nickel state players especially. When you have no idea where your next dollar is going to come from or how you're going to pay for your next meal so you eat an MRE on the way to work, as Coach Seth did working his way up, or you're eating ramen noodles twice a day? Hell, I've been around people in this world who live on enshima, which is a staple food they eat twice a day. They're lucky if they get to eat fish once a week. There are signs all over town imploring people to wash their hands, and that's so that they don't die of dysentery. So you never know when you'll face a real-life situation where you have zero money, and you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You think it can't be you, but I got news for you. Seneca of Stoic Wisdom 
said if you wouldn't have a man flinch when the crisis comes, train him before it comes. What that tells me is you probably ought to learn how to fast. Herman Hess said if a man has nothing to eat, fasting is the most intelligent thing he can do. You want a psychological edge? Go without food for 48 hours. Just make sure you keep your loved ones at arm's length. But for you young guys, fasting might not be ideal. I understand that. Probably isn't. I don't give nutrition advice. But self-inflicted stress is where I do give advice. And figuring out how to manage a full-time job and a side hustle. Or a 15-hour course load and giving 100% to your teammates and coaches. And making sure you get in the weight room even though you're exhausted. Yes, even when nobody's watching. Especially when nobody's watching. Contrary to popular belief, character matters more than it ever has. 15 hours of classes, 100% in practice, weight room, I call that table stakes. That'll put you in the top 50% of men. But is that what you're looking for? Top half? If you're looking for top half, there are other schools in the South that'll take you. Let me know. I'll help you with a list. But I'll need some time. It's not a short list. But you want to be in the top 10% of men, the top 5% of men. Those men are made by surrounding themselves with studs because they know iron sharpens iron. And they've learned to overcome adversity with a blue collar work ethic. Now is the time you prepare for adversity when you're young, when you're full of energy and ambition. Don't squander your youthful energy. You'll regret it the rest of your life. Now is the time you build resilience. Coach and I talk about why the ages of 18 to 22 are so important in a young person's development. Coach is busy making men out of boys in South Louisiana. It's when you invest in yourself, when you build the work ethic and resilience that's going to serve as the foundation for a life well lived. That time is now. I had an old friend call me recently to tell me that his coworker had just admitted his son to a hospital for depression. One of those overnight stays for weeks. The best of the best treatment center. I said, man, that is, that is tough. That's awful. I can't imagine having to put my son in a hospital for weeks, if not months. And I hope he gets the help he needs. But I did have a question. I said, do you know what they, they tried prior to admitting him for this expensive round-the-clock care that he's getting? And he said, no, I don't know. All, all I know is the kid had everything he could ever ask for. Every material thing he wanted, he got. He just as soon could have said that the kid had a weight problem and and worked at the chocolate factory. I, I don't get it. I promise you this. There is more joy in struggle than you will ever find in material comfort. Sometimes I think God made Hollywood celebrities a thing just to show us that that's not where joy and contentment are found. The group I just told you about a minute ago who eats in Shima as their twice a day meal They smile bigger than the kids in my neighborhood. And they just happen to be without parents. And were born with a disease you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. So I implore you, invest in yourself. These are unprecedented times we're living through. If you're a young ball player, give it everything you've got for the next two, four, six years. You don't know how many years of playing ball you have left. You'll be so glad you gave it everything you had. Because what you'll find in life after the NCAA is that you've gotten the sort of education most of your peers are not getting. 
So learn how to be a good teammate now. Learn how to communicate clear and concisely now. How to carry yourself walking down the hall with your head held high. Be the first to look another man in the eye and say, hey, how are you today, Bobby? Learn how to communicate. Learn how to fight through adversity. You're blessed with a scholarship because of your athletic ability. So be sure to thank God for your athletic ability. Nothing worse than entitlement. Hey, I had to walk on. If you got a scholarship, you're at a bit of a disadvantage versus guys like me. Walking on gave me a little more starve, a little more dog that you don't have. So you've got to work harder. I promise you, when you get to the real world and see your colleagues loafing and complaining about trivialities that you won't think twice about, you'll remember why you're unfazed. Because you've faced adversity and you've overcome it. You know what it's like to strike out when 34 guys are relying on you to come through with the big hit. Not to mention thousands of screaming fans and the coach who decides whether you get to play next game or not. Or you've been the stud pitcher who didn't have his best inning but learned to come back that next inning with the eye of the tiger. Because you learned to use, you learned to use failure as fuel to drive you to get better. That's what failure is. That's what rejection is. And you'll be facing it the rest of your life, by the way. I'm 40 years old. I still get rejected. But failure, rejection is fuel. So you painted the corner with a pitch I wasn't expecting. I was early. I missed it. Tip of the cap. But guess what? Next at bat, your ass is mine. And then I'm going to steal second and third. You develop this mindset now. You learn to separate yourself with this mindset now. So you'll have it to serve you for the next 10, 20, 40 years. I have an excellent guest today, and I'm really excited to share him with you. As you may have picked up, he is the successful head baseball coach at Nichols State University. His name is Seth Thibodeau. Nichols is my alma mater. It's where I went to school. And coach would be the first to tell you it is not a country club university. We are blue collar. It's the details that win empires. That's why he and I talk about the power of handwritten notes, why he has the heart of a teacher, why he tells his players the Roger Bannister four-minute mile story every year. Because he knows that once people see something done, they realize they can do it too. But why not be the one to set the precedent? Be the leader, not the follower. Coach Thibodeau started coaching at Pearl River Community College in the fall of 2003. Now he's headed into his 18th year coaching collegiate baseball. It'll be his 11th season as head coach at Nichols State. This weekend, two Colonel baseball players graduate. That'll make 102 and 103 total players graduated in 10 years. If you had to ask Coach, I think that's what he'd be most proud of, helping to raise the academic bar, so to speak, with the baseball program. But also in 10 seasons, he's become the second winningest coach in program history. They've won an incredible 266 games in 10 years. And perhaps even more impressive, 70% of their home games have won. If I give Coach a hard time, it's only because I want to keep him around a long time. And I hope that comes across in this conversation. I love what he's doing for our university. If you're a player or parent listening anywhere in the Houston area, Cypher ISD, Spring Branch, Katie, Klein, you're playing baseball anywhere in South Louisiana, Mississippi, I got to tell you, there's something special about Nickel State. We're a family. It's where we go to develop so that we can come out as men ready to conquer the world. 
There aren't a lot of transformational coaches out there to play for, but my guest today is one of them. So please welcome my friend, Coach Seth Thibodeau. Seth, welcome to the podcast, man. Glad you're here. Very proud to be here. Thank you for having me. I texted you last night about the Jim Gray goat special. Did you get a chance to watch it? I did. I really did. I enjoyed it. I I was actually shocked that Pete Rose was on there. Me too. I really got into it because I know uh, Jim Gray had tried to interview and poke at Pete Rose when he finally got to come back on the field for an all-star game years Mm -hmm. ago. And so I always thought there was a little riff there. And I've always not liked Jim Gray ever since then. And so last night I found myself really entertained and it was pretty awesome. Well, it's interesting you say you don't like Jim Gray because I was reminded of what a prick Pete Rose was last night. (laughs) Isn't he really? And it got me thinking, is there something about the caliber of player that you have to be a prick? Yeah. I mean, Ty Cobb, Barry Bonds, the list goes on. I think he's so passionate about what he did and so proud of what he did and how he played the game every day. I just think it comes off as really arrogant and prickish, but I respect it. I really Mm. do. Tom Brady has that same arrogance to him, and Michael yeah. Jordan kind of had a little bit. And sure. All the great ones seem to have it, you know. So when I say the GOAT, who do you think of? Michael Jordan. Me too. My favorite. You watched The Last Dance? Every, like twice. <laughs> but I refer back to a lot of them. Like there were certain points in that movie that I, I use every day in practice or how I'm talking to our team. Like excerpts or quotes uh, from it? Quotes, excerpts, just how they went about practice and tolerance versus productivity, like – you know, they let Dennis Rodman kind of do his thing, but they knew they needed him to win. Yeah. And so I had this meeting with our players last week. Like, understand tolerance versus productivity. I'm not going to tolerate if you haven't produced. I'll tolerate some things if, you know, you walk around here. So I explained certain players. Like, if Michael Jordan walks in a room or I'll name another NBA player, who are you going to listen to first? And I'll start bringing in players. Like, I'll name a player like Trevor Kilcrease, our starting pitcher, who's probably our team captain. I'll bring him up, and then I'll throw Devin DeSandro's name out, who's a freshman from, from E.D. White. And I'll ask the whole team, who do you listen to? You know, and it's immediate. Like, Kilcrease. Well, yeah, that's – you have their respect. That's what I look at, too, when I'm a coach. It's mm-hmm. tolerance versus productivity. When you produce, you get a little more leniency. That's so true. The corporate world is that way, too. Yeah. If you're busting your butt and scheduling a bunch of meetings as a salesperson, they're going to give you a little more leeway. Yeah. If you're not bringing in a certain amount of revenue. Right. Hitting your quota. Yeah. Give me an example of of an excerpt you've pulled from The Last Dance that you've used in practice. Whenever, like, I will never forget, and I sent it to our players immediately, I found clips of it. Whenever he came to tears and said, you need to stop this, and it was like, mm. I have to expl- if I have to explain to you why I played as hard as I played, that's your problem. I st- I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. Me but too. I bought shoes because of that guy. You know, and it wasn't because, to be cool, it was because I thought I was going to be a good player like him. Like, that's how impactful he was on sport in general, and you just pulled for him all the time. And when he came to tears and you saw how hard he practiced that and how he wanted to kick everybody's rear end, in the, in the Olympics. So I have a quote in my office that says, it's from Michael Jordan. He said, I saw dream teamers dogged in practice uh, for the Olympics. I knew immediately that's what separated me from them because it hurt me to mm. see some of the dream teamers dogged in practice. So I show that to our players all the time. My wife brings it up all the time. She sees it and she gets motivated by it. So, uh, But yeah, he is one out without a doubt. And I'm so glad they played that during quarantine so our players, because mm. they, they're, they're not knowing who he is. Mm-hmm. Like when I was a kid, everybody we used to bring up Dr. J. I'm like, who's that? You know, it's Michael Jordan to me or Larry Bird. Or, and so I'm so glad they brought up who he is and he's not just a shoemaker. He was a, the best yes. ever. They kind of got the imitation, which was Kobe. Yes. Nothing against right. Kobe. Sure. He's Mamba. 
but yeah, it, it was interesting. His yeah. his demand of his teammates to be great, and they showed uh, Pippen, and and Pippen talked about how they needed that. Yeah. They needed that expectation right. that he brought to the table. So you have a pitcher that reminds you a little bit of, of the leadership and charisma that Jordan had. I do. Wow. I just. Maybe not, of course, not from a talent standpoint, but he was, he's been our number one. He's fought through adversity. He has nothing at home. He's, he's working really hard to get a degree. He'll be the first one with a degree in his family. There's so many things he's trying to get his life right and make right about everything in his future. He has a child that lives in Texas and it just drives him every day. But as soon as the quarantine and shutdown hit in the spring, he reached out to some kids that were from E.D. White and brought them over to his apartment and said, you're going to work with me every day. And if you can't keep up with me, you can't play for us. And he sat him down and said, this is how we play here. I've never had that. So, again, I get goosebumps just jumping you know, all over my neck right now. But to be able to coach someone like that is a treat. But he does that every day. You know, it's like he's driven every single day. And I was doing the fall evaluations on the way here, and it had him down for most respected, best leader, most impactful person in their life. He's everywhere, you know. And so – if he doesn't win a game for us this year, he's won so many that we will never know about, you know, because others are just getting better. But he has that impact on him that 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 he's the he's the alpha, no question. Speaking of the alpha, they they spotlighted Mike Tyson last night. Yeah. That dude was the eye of the tiger personified, yes. right? Yes. I, I remember Jim Gray asking him if he regrets biting Holyfield's ear. And Tyson said, Well, kinda yes, kinda no. He said he lost his discipline, and that's why he was upset with himself, and that's why he might regret it. Yeah. And I thought I mean, that really resonated with me because if I think about times in my life when I have screwed up, it's almost always because I lost my discipline. Right. Is discipline something you can coach, or is that something that you look for when you're recruiting players? A little bit of both. I think we can have structure and organization that they've never had before, and it allows them to perform and when we recruit them, I tell them, this is how it's done here. If you don't like it, you're going to be miserable when you get here because it matters. Like these details, I believe, build empires. And I don't know the other way. And I've tried to adjust the other way and be less hands-on and be less impact, you know, or less less of a leader. But I feel like I'm cheating them if I do. And that's not really what they signed on for. Like our school is is not a country club type university. It's more of a blue-collar, hardworking mentality but boy, you can be very successful after. I try to take on that same attitude when I'm coaching our players, but like I tell them, and you just brought it up earlier, if you're not 15 minutes early, you're 15 minutes late. If if you're the last one out of the dugout, when someone hits a home run, I got a problem with it. You know, if it's just certain things like that, how you wear your shoes, how you present yourself with your uniform, those things really matter to me. And do they matter at other universities around us? It may not, but I take pride in in the uniform, the university, and everyone that's played there. So I want them to wear the uniform for everyone else, not them. So there are certain ways I want them to have their uniform on. There are certain ways I want them to wear their hat. For example, I remember before Daryl Hamilton passed away four years ago or so, he was watching us take BP, and he just was really concerned that some of our players had a flat bill. And I liked that. I appreciated that he cared that much about our uniform to where he could critique it. I mean, he played in the big leagues for 12 years. I, he was a lifetime 290 hitter. And he played here, and he got a degree here. I'm, I'm in. And, you know, it's, I'm, I'm working for him. You know, I'm working for his school. So, 
whenever he said that, I put it into our, our rules for the ever since you know he said that. But I told that to our players, and they were like, "Yeah, you know, we're not we're not 16 anymore. We're, we're 20. We're a little closer to big league age than we are, you know, 12 year old travel ball. So maybe we should start wearing our hats the way this guy wants it." And so it's kind of stuck. And I tell the story every year, like Daryl Hamilton. It's not my rule. It's he asked to, for our guys to bend the bill on their hat. He had a problem with it. And he would get fined in the big leagues for having a flat bill. So it's just, hey, things like that really matter. And structure is important. And it can change someone. It can turn an average person into an overachiever. And that's what I want to see. That is a great story. I've never heard that story before. Daryl Hamilton, we were talking about earlier, stole something like 80 bases in a season right. when he was at Nickel State back in the 80s. And yeah, he had a long career with the Brewers, and he was so charismatic. You guys would come and eat at a Mexican restaurant in Houston. He would be holding court in the corner of the room with 25 guys with around him. Yes. Not not boosters, not money people with players. It was awesome. Like I've never seen before. Yeah. What a tragic loss. Yeah. He was murdered in Pearland, which yeah. is a suburb of Houston, about, what, five years ago? Yeah, that's right. On Father's Day. Oh, what a tragedy. And it just so happens that his oldest son is on our team now. Is that right? Yeah. So is he from Pearland High School? He went to actually went to St. Thomas High School. Ben Fairchild is associated with with St. Thomas he is. somehow. He is Craig Biggio. Craig Biggio, that whole crew, they're all in that area. Nice. Um, and you were able to pull a kid from there is a big deal. Yeah, and he was like passionately in love with wanting to come to Nichols. Like that was his dream school, which was really cool because I wrote him a letter when we played at Houston Baptist in two thousand. 13 maybe or 12 i can't remember i was one of my first or second second or third year here and um i wrote him a letter after he came to hit with us i think he was in like fifth or sixth grade but i thought it was cool that daryl would bring his kids out to hit with our guys on thursday before we played so i wrote both of his boys a letter and he saved that letter by his bed for like i don't know six or seven years and when he got a Except into Nichols, he was crying. his mom said she'd never seen him cry since the funeral, and, and he was crying. So that was really cool. So if I was put on this earth for anything, it was to get that young man into his dream school at Nichols State. I love that, Coach. Handwritten notes go a long way. I still have the handwritten note you sent me after I spoke with the team. I think it was 2014. They're so rare nowadays yeah. that they stand out, yeah. right? Everybody's really texting do. and emailing. If you That's can right. take the time and address a letter with your handwriting, yeah. those things are kept. Yep. You know, everybody opens their mail over the garbage can. What's the sure. one piece of mail that you don't throw in the garbage the handwritten can? Letter. Handwritten letter. Yep. Going back to discipline, you know who's extremely disciplined? The first guest I had on this podcast, which was Chase Lambin. You had Chase on a Zoom call recently. Tell me about that. It was an incredible. And I was actually really worried about asking him, but I have a lot of respect for him. When he spoke to our players, he, he I learned a lot. I took notes. And when you guys spoke to our team before we played Wake Forest, who just so happened to be a pitch away from going to Omaha that year, that team was loaded. And we needed a little bit of a – they got us on day one, and, and we needed a little bit of a, 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 a spike in, in energy because, we, you know, we got humbled a little bit. We lost five or nothing on opening day, and we're going right back out there to face these guys, and they were preseason ranked in the top 15. But I also knew that if we were going to beat them, it was, we were going to be a little tougher than them. Anyway, we beat them pretty good that day. But listening to him talk – I know what it meant to our players when we were out on the field and their attitudes were totally different after, as opposed to what you know they were a day before and what we were like in breakfast that morning. So, And he just kept talking about bringing the fight to the pitcher and, and, and to just it stuck with those guys for a long time. So 
I've always kind of followed his career ever since then. I knew of him uh, when he played at UL Lafayette, just being from the Lafayette area and some guys that had played on those that team with him when he was there. And I talked to Coach Robe a lot. I would I would confide in him for a lot of things. We're from the same area. And my brother was a high school coach at Notre Dame, McCrawley, where, where Robe's from, and also at Turlings Catholic in Lafayette. So he and Robe were very close. I was very close with the family. So I'd go sit at Robe's house and on his couch and we'd just talk baseball. And I wouldn't take a note. It just stuck. That's how good he was. And he would talk very highly of Chase Lamb. And mm. It meant a lot to him, the coach. I guess they just were the same, you know, alpha type guys. So anyway, I remember following him, watching him. Um, then when he spoke to our guys, I mean, you said you may not know this name, but it was Chase Lamb. And I'm like, I know exactly who that guy is. You know, <laughs> I had a lot of respect for how he played the game and, Following his career, and man, he just keeps sticking around. He's going to be in the big leagues one day. I know he will. Um, but when he did a podcast with our guys, it was like, look, I'm just going to shoot from the hip. I'm not going to give you a presentation. I'm just going to talk. And it didn't matter. I knew where, where he was coming from, and he didn't need a show of PowerPoint. He speaks with so much passion that it just sticks, like Rogue. It mm-hmm. just sticks. I invited some players, some other high school coaches. He was tremendous. And I knew right away, like some people are just meant to make it to the big leagues. You know, he reminds me a lot of Bobby Dickerson. Mm. They they coach with their heart and and passion and very old school. Mm. If that's what you use these, you know, that that's a term, uh, but probably can connect to the new school. Mm. Like I see Bobby is so old school. He doesn't have, he doesn't have a resume. He doesn't believe in it. Mm. He still doesn't back into a parking spot, Buck Showalter and, and the boss over with the Yankees, they wouldn't let him do that because in their mind, they thought, you're thinking about leaving when you back into your parking spot. <laughs> but he can connect with Fernando Tatis Jr. like no one else. He's the reason why Manny Machado is so good when he plays with Bobby. His numbers are incredible when Bobby's around. When Bobby's not, he's trying to take guys out in bases or he's just doing things that may not you know, be respectful. But when he's around Bobby, they connect. They just have it. He just has that gift. And I think of Chase... In that way, I think that Chase is going to be in the big leagues one day, for, probably for a long time. One of the things Chase talks about is when he walks around the clubhouse, how every kid nowadays has their head in a screen. There's not as much camaraderie as yeah. there used to be. I'm curious what you've noticed about how kids have changed over the last, say, seven to 10 years. We're all addicted to our screens to some extent. Yeah. You can't tell when people are working or or looking at pictures on Instagram how is Twitter and texting and, and just the use, the constant usage of phones, how has that changed kids through the years? I push on them that Twitter is your resume. Be careful what you press. Mm. Be careful what you send. It's not that important if you're not ready for it. It can be incredibly important later in life because you may be able to do some things because of it. But once you, if you're doing silly stuff on Twitter, then you're disrespecting our school. And I tell them that, and they, they take that to heart. Um, you got to be careful with Snapchat. You know, I just tell them it's it's never leaving. Once it's there, it's it's there. I don't want someone to come back 10 years from now and find a tweet that they put out and it keeps them from getting a job or, you know, they get in trouble because of it. It happens right now. Mm-hmm. You guys in the big leagues, you know, it happens. I, I don't want them to, to ever be in that situation. But they listen. They believe. They learn. They know. Um, but it is, if you if you allow it, it'll be a phone-driven road trip. It'll be a phone driven meeting. It'll be everything phone. So they know that their phones are not welcome in the clubhouse. They have to turn them off. That's our private time. I don't want pictures taken in the clubhouse. I don't want pictures. I don't want it. I, I just, this is our one place in this world 
where we can go to where no one ever has to know what's going on. Mm. And that's what a clubhouse is supposed to be like. We talked about Bobby a second ago. I use that. He wouldn't bring his son into the clubhouse. Like there was a certain line drawn in the clubhouse where he weren't allowed to go. And he wouldn't tow that. He wouldn't cross that line. He did. He had so much respect for Buck Showalter and the players that he wouldn't even bring his only son into that area. And most of us would be like, man, I got to bring my boy and he's got to see this. And he has so much respect for his job and the profession that he wouldn't do it. So I, I want our players to understand that. Like, man, and I go visit Bobby in certain places in the big leagues where they're playing. I don't cross that line. I'm nervous. I don't want to be in anybody's way. I don't want to be a distraction. Like I have that much respect for these players and these coaches that uh, I know what they're going through, you know? And so I want our players to think that way. And so when they go in the clubhouse, I want them to have trust and freedom to be able to say and do as they please. And I don't want to be uh, touching them on their shoulder. The only thing I ask is you make sure those phones are off when we're in here. You can say, walk around, do whatever you want. That's our place. That's our club, you know? And it's elite to be there. And I want them to think that way mm. and, and think like a man. And so uh, when we go on a road trip, uh, it's, it's it's tough because they have a lot of homework they can use their phone for. When we do study hall, they're on, you know, they have stuff that can, the phones are incredible now. Um, I don't see a whole lot of tweeting though. I think Snapchat is really the main thing now. They recognize right away that they don't need that. So I tell them, you're not fans. You don't need it. If you need Twitter, if you need these things, then, you, then you're a fan. You're just like, you're not separating yourself. Tom Brady doesn't. You know, we talk about these leaders all the time. Michael Jordan, all those guys, all these guys, they don't need that. You know, that doesn't drive them. So if that drives you, then you need something. You don't need the game. You need something else. You're playing the game for the wrong reason. So, but they buy into that. They do. They really do. They, they do that. And the leaders, it depends on your alpha. It depends on your leader. If it's not important to him, it's not going to be important to the whole club. But uh, when we go to dinner on the road, I make them keep their bus, their, their phone on the bus so that they can talk to each other face to face. Because if you don't, world. they'll be looking straight down, yeah. you know? And so it is different. Uh, it's dangerous, but that's the only way I know how. It might change 10 years from now or, you know, another coach may think differently, but I just, I think that their speaking skills are down and it's my responsibility to help make them better. Is yeah. it your responsibility? So I notice an extreme literalism. I notice a lack of eye contact. I, I stopped working in the corporate world in 2015. So it's been a while since I had regular interaction with young people. And I feel like there's a new crop of human among us. They will talk to you for 10 or 12 minutes, yeah. stop talking, and then look at you as if, okay, your turn. Yeah. <laughs> there used to be this yes. dance of communication. Sure where nonverbal cues are, are read and you can pick up when I'm done talking and you know it's your cue or you pick up on something that I'm saying. Right. So these kids are arriving at school having spent the last six years with their head in a screen. Do you feel it's incumbent on you to help them to learn to communicate better and help to mold them into young men who can thrive in the, in the professional world after college? I do. I don't feel like I would be doing my job. That's me personally. Maybe it's not right. Maybe I'm I'm overthinking it, but I feel like I, I don't know that I would feel good about myself going to sleep at night if I didn't. And I, I'm concerned with their, their speaking skill and I don't want them to walk by me in the hall and put their head down and act like they didn't see me. Like, I don't want them to do that. Their presentation is so important. How you speak to someone, how you wake up and make your bed, man. Wake up and put your clothes on properly and brush your hair and, and, and be a man. I think those, I think strongly in my heart that that's my responsibility. 
uh, is to make them think and act like a man. Yeah, I take it to heart. I take it. I take a lot of pride in that. But I'm also their baseball coach too. But I'm telling you, I'm their stepdad. Like I have to watch their grades. I have to watch their phones. I take it to heart, and I take I take full responsibility for it. And and uh, but I'm going to be harsh. I'm going to be hard. And and if you can handle hard, you're going to handle a lot of things after here. They're going to appreciate you much more later. There's no doubt about it. I remember writing a letter to Coach B.D. Parker and telling him to keep those kids working hard because they're going to appreciate it much more when they're finished. Sure Sure you do. And you want to be the stepdad. That's interesting. You use that phraseology. I assume everything except the beating, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, the beating is my practice or the the weight room or the mental beating. It really is. I love it. I, I do think a leader should not just help you with your job or with your sport, but help you in life. So the communication skills are, are huge because I do see them diminishing and it's a shame. Sure. Smartphones have just changed the world so much. How much are you relying on a kid's social media feed to assess their character when you're recruiting them? Is that something that you guys check out? Yes, it is something I check mom and dad's too. Mm. I'm hoping that they don't, they aren't a part of that. I hope it's not important to them or if it's a support system for their kids I do check it because it's, it doesn't lie to you. Mm. It tells you what you need to know. I ask the question first, tell me about your best moment in baseball. And if it's if it begins with I, I got a problem with it. Mm. I don't care how talented he is. I got to let my coaches, my assistants really talk me into taking him. Mm. He better hit the ball over the fence a long way, right? <laughs> but when it says we and he's borderline or he's marginal, or he's, you're not sure if you wanted to pull the trigger on him. He says, man, that time when we won state championship or when we did this, then I know right away, like, he's playing for the right reasons. That comes from home, though. That comes mm-hmm. from mom and dad. That's that's raised. That's driven. And kids have learned, I think, in the last five years to tone it down. I think there's more education on how to, you know, not do it as opposed to when we first started this craziness 10, 12 years ago. It was free-for-all. You put whatever you want on there. Then you're like, whoa, I I need to slow down. Well, you mentioned something I hadn't considered, which is, and you hear this, parents, they're looking at parents' feed. If you're fighting about politics nonstop on Facebook, you probably haven't considered that that your kids' college prospects are being weighed against that. That, That's so interesting. And you know what else, too, when a parent is attacking a coach in some way, shape, or form on social media or has a problem with a coach or a leader. That doesn't change. So why am I going to go recruit you? Because when you get here and your son's not playing, you're going to have a problem with the coach again. Or if you've already transferred two or three times in high school or if you just keep switching teams, you're teaching that. You are what you allow to happen. You are what you do all the time. And you are what you repeatedly do. So it doesn't – you get in the habit of doing this. When it's not right, you move on to the next – that's, you know, I know we're leading into something different, but that it all comes on, we're not, on social media. I think it's, it's all it's, interrelated. Yeah, it you talk it's about relative. habits, you get into the professional world, your your prospective boss is going to say, tell me about your habits, kid. Right. So at a D1 school, give me some insight. I know you guys are allowed 11.7 scholarships. Yes. How do you divvy that up? Like if you get a, a shot at a, a left-handed pitcher throwing 92. Yeah. That's one, and now you have 10.7. How does that yeah, work? How do you think about somewhat. it? Somewhat. I, I don't want to not lose a kid over a dollar, but no one on our team is on a full scholarship. So we have guys on 60%. That's a good number. You know, that's tuition plus some. Um, if you combine that with Louisiana kid that's on tops, then all of a sudden it's 80 to 90% of a scholarship. But that 
tops doesn't count against us, right? If guys are at a 3.5 or better and we give them 25% scholarship, um, they're at Nichols, we're fortunate. They're giving scholarships for three fives and 25s. What is tops? Can you explain what Louisiana tops is? Um, education uh, scholarship based? It, it comes from uh, if you have a 3.0 and a 20 ACT, there's certain levels. So you get 2550 for the lowest level, and then it jumps up to 29,000. I mean, $2,900 uh, a semester, and then it goes above that even more to like 3,000. 3200 a semester. The scholarship. The scholarship does. Okay. Based so, upon your numbers of, of ACT and GPA. Okay. So listeners in Houston won't understand what we're talking about. They won't, about. but I think they have something similar in Texas. I'm just not sure exactly what they call it, but it's it's academic-based. And you, you can use it anywhere in the state of Louisiana. Okay. If someone from New Orleans uh, went to school in Houston, they could not use their tops. You have four years to use it. But if they transferred back in, they could definitely use it. And so tuition at Nichols is now roughly three grand a year? Um, no, it's probably forty four hundred a semester. Wow. Yeah. I believe it was close to twelve hundred a semester yes. when I was there. It was it has grown quite a bit, especially when we had a state budget cuts in 2010, 2011. It grew quite a bit. And then the next president came in and said, We're not gonna raise tuition. And they haven't. They haven't done it since. So it's it's pretty much stayed the same for the last probably six or seven years. Okay, so I was going to ask, to what do you attribute the growth in tuition costs? But you're saying it has to do with budget cuts. It's Correct. not like the growth in bureaucracy or, no, that's right. or upgraded facilities, because I know mm. things are looking pretty good around there now. Yeah, it really is. And that comes from student referendum fees that they have included uh, in there. Tell me what a red flag would be when you're recruiting a kid, for example, you know, tries to negotiate and says, well, you know, McNeese is giving me a full ride. How do yeah. you, how do you handle well, that? Well, I, I, I kind of do, I don't really put it on the kid to, to find out from him. I kind of do some digging and research from his high school coach, from his summer coach. Hey, what's he getting from them? Mm. Um, because I know when I give $10,000 to a kid from Mississippi and the University of Memphis comes in and they offer you know, 9,000. I don't want to get into negotiating war. This is your gift from us and I'm committed to doing this. And I usually make personal commitments to them for more than, I'm not going to pull this from you unless, you know, if you, if you put your hands on a female in the wrong way, if you disrespect our organization, our university, um, if you get a DUI or, you know, failing drug tests and you go in the clubhouse, and you're an issue on this team, I'm pulling that scholarship from you. I don't care if I lose my job over it. You're not going to do that to the school. So it's annual, 10000 annual? annual? Okay. It's annual, five this semester, right? Five you don't semester. get a full ride, four-year scholarship anymore? No. That's not a not thing? Not in baseball, you don't. Okay. You, you can't you can't write, sign a four-year contract. It's a it's a year-by-year basis. Um, but I like to I like to tell these guys, look, if I'm recruiting you, you're my responsibility. I want to stick with this. But don't buck the system. Don't, don't, don't ruin it for yourself. But the red flag would come from um, – there, there's really not much, like – I, I, this is what we have. I try to be upfront with them to avoid that. And they already know who I am. This is what we do here. And I really lean on the high school coach is going to tell you everything. Mm. The junior college coach is going to tell you everything. He's going to be upfront with you. He's going to push his guys. But if you ask the right questions, if you do your job, you're going to know about their personality and you're going to find out what mom and dad is like at home. You're going to find out the, the background. And usually the guys that, uh, come from a really hardworking background are the ones that really give you everything they've got. You know, they overachieve. And so you kind of look for that a little bit. I I deal really well with certain demographics. It's just I've recognized that from myself. 
uh, through the years. And so there's certain guys I'll fight harder for. If I, but I won't lose a player over a dollar. If if I got to find another thousand dollars to get him to get him, I'm not losing him over that. We're not going to lose you over a dollar. If we're even, then you'd have to decide who you want to be around. You become the average of the five people you hang out with the most. If you don't trust my five coaches to make you a better human being in five years, this is a 50-year decision, not a one- or two-year. I don't want you transferring here because you don't like it. I don't want to make you transfer. I don't want to transfer on you. I want my vision and goals that I'm sharing with you. I really want this to happen. And you need to decide right now where you're going to live 50 years from now. Are you going to be living in, I don't know, somewhere in Florida's recruiting you or somewhere in Alabama's recruiting you? Do you really want to live there or are you chasing the brand? If you're chasing the brand, you're not playing for the right reasons. If you're, if you're chasing something that you want to impact, then you are chasing this. Let yeah. me interrupt you there. What do you mean chasing the brand? The brand of the university? Like it's a prestigious? Yeah, prestigious. If you're looking for the colors and the letters to make you feel complete. Like a so, Stony Brook, for example. Yeah. Is that prestigious uh, versus like a nickel state? No, I would say if you would do whatever. If you're scared or you want to wear that purple and gold or you want to go to Mississippi State, you'll do it at all costs. You'll walk on, you'll do whatever. Mm. And if that doesn't work and Memphis comes along, well, it's Memphis. Maybe it just looks better. I'm going to go there. You know, or um, Nickel State's name may not look as cool as, I don't know, University of Houston. I'm going to go there. It, it seems cooler, but it's different in baseball. You know, and so if you're chasing a brand, you want to make sure you get to tell everyone back home where you're playing and it sounds cool. And that happens a lot in baseball. Well, it almost happened to me twice. A lot of times in playing summer ball in Kansas, or I'm sure this happens in the Cape or whatever league you're playing in, our catcher was from U of H, and he said, man, you ought to come play left field for us. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know about transferring, and why don't you think I'm capable of playing center field there? And he said, well, we got this, we got this kid named Michael Bourne playing center, and I don't even know if you're faster than him. <laughs> and I was like, what? I can beat that dude in a race. So it turns out I, I didn't go. I would have had to have taken the initiative to talk to the coaches. Right. And I didn't do that. Yeah. But we had a guy that was playing shortstop that was from Texas Tech. And he said, our center fielder was drafted by the Mets in the fifth round. You ought to come play center field for us. Right. I did take the initiative and talk to the coach and came very close yeah. to transferring to Texas Tech. I went to our coach at Nichols and asked for more money. I didn't tell him. I wasn't sure. using this as leverage sure. to stay at Nichols. Right. But he said, yeah, whatever, Bradley D., whatever you need. Yeah. You know? and, and so he took care of me. You've had two guys that have transferred in the last few years. More recently, you uh -huh. had the guy that signed with LSU, freshman yes. stud Joe Bear. Yeah. How, do, how do you deal with that? It's not easy. It's, it's tough. I, I, I don't like it. Um, I don't like how it happened. There's some things that went down behind the scenes that I feel like um, I wish wouldn't happen in our sport, you know, behind behind the back stuff. And um, you just deal with it as a professional. You just, you, do, you know, do your job and try to go get better, try to replace them with better players. Like it, that drives me. Like if I, if, if I, if you don't feel like I was good enough for your, your son or your situation, if I didn't coach my rear end off every single day for you, yeah, I take a lot of pride in my job. Like, I'm going to go find somebody that I feel like is better than you. I'm a, I like proving people wrong. Mm. And I'm going to take that guy and beat you with him. And and so it drives me a lot every day. I hate it because I like four-year loyalty. Um, things happen for a reason. Things are tough. Everyone has a different – COVID was different. You know, it, was, it changed a lot. But I ended up with a player from LSU this year – that I wouldn't trade for the world. 
and the, transferred in from yes, LSU. West Hoops, incredible okay. kid, incredible. Like I can't wait to coach him every day. Um, incredible teammate, playing with a chip on his shoulder. He has something to prove. Um, he is an absolute pleasure to be around every day. And so, you know, you just take the good, the, the bad. You, you, we, we end up with three SEC transfers. I've got a Mississippi State, another outfielder from Mississippi State, a left-handed hitter who's extremely athletic and probably a draft pick soon. And we have a pitcher from that transferred in from Auburn. And so you take the good with the bad. It's it's That's why I don't like the one-time transfer thing. I don't like the behind-the-back stuff. That's, that's tough, you know, for me because I would never do that to somebody. I hate it. So when it gets done, it, it's tough. Well, you say that. But if LSU called you tomorrow and wanted you to in- interview for the head job, are you going to stay loyal to Nichols and, and not entertain that? Yeah, that's an awesome comment. I mean, it, my goal in life is to work somewhere where my wife doesn't have to work anymore because she's worked so she's worked just as hard or harder than me. And I want her to be able to raise our kids. And, and we haven't been able to have the kids or do the things we've wanted to because our jobs don't. So to answer your question, you have to like. Is that a better situation for her and my kids? Then I would certainly be all about it. You but know, it's, it's, it's not my dream job or my dream, my goal, but it fits into that. You know, what I always told my wife I want to do this for. Is that the behind the back stuff you're talking about, though? Just entertaining uh, offers from other places? That's tough because if, if, if yeah, a, a little, if, if the, everything was up front, if, if things were done up front and and, and people were mad enough to call you on the phone and, and tell you, then, then, then I would really be, you know, like, I understand, you know, I, I get it. If, if schools, if other coaches from other schools weren't like trying to do things sneaky in a sneaky way and, and you find out, you know, in certain ways, like that's tough for me. You know, if, if I were, I was going to do something, I don't think I'd ever do it that way. I'd, I'd always want to be up front and explain to someone, Hey, this is what I want to do. Easier said than done, Coach. Sure. Because even in the corporate world, I can remember asking for a $10,000 raise, them not giving it to me, and then turning in a resignation letter and the VP of sales calling me into his office and saying, are you familiar with the acronym NFW? And I said, no, what is that? And he said, no fucking way am I losing you. Yeah. What's it going to take? Sure. And he made me the highest paid salesperson in the company. My salary went up probably... 40%. I would have never gotten that had I not turned in a resignation letter. So it's leverage. Sure. It's a euphemism at this point. If somebody's going on to a doctor's appointment, they're going on a job interview. Yeah. So I don't know how you keep that on the up and up. So anyway, it's it's such a tricky thing and it's even hard to talk about. Sure. Right? I mean, I'm, no, I'm uncomfortable absolutely. talking about absolutely. it with you, but I, I just don't see not doing what's optimal for yourself and your family. Sure. Because, yeah, if, I mean, I imagine when you were Coach of the Year 2014 in the Southland Conference, I imagine you had to entertain some calls. Yeah. There's quite a few. It was, yeah. It's part of it. It's it's a good problem to have. It's it's it's. Um, would you want to play for someone who never got a job offer or do you want to play for a guy that has a lot of job offers? Great you know? point. But, yeah, how do you reconcile the integrity piece of it? Because yeah. you want somebody of high character and integrity and – and oh, you you lied about going to the doctor, but sure. it's just part of the of the world. It's playing the game, yeah. and you almost have to play the game to thrive in this world. Right. Yeah. If you get a call, you probably ought to entertain it <laughs> right. and, and update your resume every quarter with what you're doing sure. because you won't remember five years from now everything that you accomplished. Correct. That's right. It's tough, but I appreciate your candor, coach. Sure. 
Can you talk about why the ages of 18 to 22 are so important in a young person's development? I think that that's where you really transform. You know, I, I, I think the COVID shutdown, the COVID, uh, the coronavirus allowing seniors to come back this year and get another year has impacted me, our players. It's allowed me to be a better coach because I have 23-year-olds now leading my team. See, when they're 21 and 22, they're not ready yet. They're still close. They think like an 18-year-old thinks. You're still chasing everything that's not important, right? Like um, you're chasing other pleasures. Like I told you, I literally met with our players on Friday about now's the time you need to decide, like, you know, you're an addict at something. You are It's you don't have to just be a drug addict or an alcoholic. We all have our, our, our issues. We all have those things that grab us and try to pull us. Some of us like to sleep late. Some of us don't like to eat right. Some of us are lazy. You don't even know it. You just don't like to really work hard. Some of us like to skip weight. Some of us don't like to run until it's time to. We all have a disease and we got to get over that. And right now in your life, you can do it, but it just, when you're 18 and 19, it kind of goes through your ear. Ah, whatever, I'm going to get it. And then when it's 21, 22, even 23, you're starting to think like that. You know, because when you're 23, you start thinking like a man. And if you can remember when you were 23, I know you thought, oh, I think a little bit different now than I was 20. Because when you're 20, you're just caught in the middle and you're just all over the place. You know, you're fumbling. You're always trying to figure it out. You're changing your thoughts daily. You just, college changes you, right? And so I'm scared to death to say the wrong thing in that what I feel like is maybe the most impactful time for a young man's life because he's going from a boy to a man. But I'm telling you, when you're 18, you still have those silly 16-year-old habits. You're still a little mama's boy. You still have some spoiledness to you. You still, your body language is awful. You know, and it's just, there's nothing they can do about it. It just is. And so I spend all of my time correcting body language and habits. But I'm okay with that. I know that. I know that that, that when they're going to change that too, they're going to fix that and fix somebody else too when they're 23. They're going to turn around and make sure that freshman doesn't do it anymore. They had to do it to me. I can't imagine. I would be heartbroken if I had to press play on a recorder and show my team my body language when I was an 18-year-old. Terrible. Everything I coached against, it would be that little jerk on the field right there. And I'm so embarrassed by it. It makes me want to make sure that they don't do it. You know, So uh, I think that there's so much impact from grades. You can save somebody's life. You can save their careers. You can, I think what drives me more than anything sometimes is when I get that junior college player and he doesn't know where he's going in life. He's just talented and baseball is just saving him. And he has barely gets in. And the next thing you know, he's got a degree and it was a three point, you know, he's had three straight semesters of a 3.0. He meets his future wife. He's thinking about getting a master's. Like he's got a life now. And two years before that, I think he looks back and says, holy smokes, thank God I came here. And so it, I got to make sure our coaches, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be the coach that talks about uh, drinking and sex. And I just don't want to spend our time in the clubhouse or in the dugout when we have our time together doing that. I want to do it in other ways. And so it is, it's, I feel like it's the most impactful time for a man to, or a boy to become a man. And so everything we do is just like letting you come speak to our players or them hearing from success. We have a su- successful speaker series where I invite people in to speak to our players and um, it changes their thoughts. And at first, they don't understand it. And they, the more they hear it, the more they're around it. Look, like we said, you become the average of the five people you hang out with the most. And the things you hear the most, then it becomes your habits. It becomes your absolutes in life. So I was fortunate. I had a great family, a great you know brothers, sisters, father, mother. But I had an awesome coach in college that 
that made me a man. He turned me into a, a fake. And um, what I felt like looking back now is like I wasn't a man until he called me out on it. And when you get called out when you're 21, you, you remember. You remember. Which is something you've told me that you instruct your assistant coaches to be mindful of what they say around kids because they will remember everything yeah. that you say. Yeah. And that's so true. I remember everything that my coach used to say. Yeah. You remember everything that your coach I used remember to say. how my coach would put his uniform on and wow. how he would brush his I remember all those things. Those details stick with me. I want to take you back to the week of George Floyd's killing. This was late May 2020. You have several African-American players on the team. How did you handle that situation as the coach of a university baseball team? So the first thing I'm thinking is don't overreact. Um, let it. I think the more we give things time, the better decisions we can make. And I'm learning that better and better now, now that I'm 40 years old. And instead of hurrying up and making a decision right there, just to be the first one to make the decision or the call, like – you know, I think about it for a couple of days. and But all I'm thinking about during this time is outside of, you know, give us more information, what's going on. Of course, this is happening. We're shut down. You know, you start thinking about why it actually happened, just being real. But I really was worried about our players. I was worried about um, what the African-American players in our team were thinking because we have a tremendous relationship. Like, I really... My dad worked with a lot of African-Americans as a kid. We've always had um, them around our house. Like, that was not a big deal for me ever. It's never been an issue for me. Um, it's never been a problem for me. It's, it's never been unaccepted or anything like that. So I've always been like, why? You know, you always have that thing in your heart. Why? Why is it like this? Why? Or is it really like this? I just can't see someone thinking like that. So whenever that's going on, I just waited a few days and I reached out to literally every every black guy that was on our team at that time. And um, Zane Washington was one. I even reached out to former players. Hey, you okay? Like, you okay? I, I reached out to some African-American coaches in the this profession, this industry that, that just, hey, you all right? Like, we're good. I'm not going to put something on social media and, and try to be somebody I'm not. I don't feel like I don't need to put a statement on Twitter when I, I want to make sure someone knows where my heart's at. If I didn't do that in my time on this earth or where I'm at in my life, if I haven't, if you don't know me, then I am, I just feel like I didn't, I got to start this thing over. Mm. I didn't, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. You think that's how Drew Brees felt that he had I'm, to start? I'm over? very curious. I'm very curious as to, I, I think about that a lot. I think about what he went through, but yes, I, I reached out to our players a few days later, text them, um, Wanted to see if they wanted to talk, if you needed, you know, and a couple of them were like, Coach, I'm not paying attention to this. This is this is silly. This is crazy. Or they would, you know, I'm trying not to get caught up in this. Or It was very mature. I thought they handled it tremendously. I thought they've handled this whole thing tremendously since March, way better than I could have at their age. And so uh, to answer your question, that, that you know, I just I reached out to them and I was hoping they just knew where my heart was at without me having to come out and do something on social media or try to you know make sure everybody knew what I was thinking. If you don't know who I am, I'm pretty straightforward. And, and, and yeah, I felt like they did. All of them were like, Coach, I love you. I know who you are. 
you don't have to do that. You know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. If you feel comfortable with me doing this, you know, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to be fake at any point in time just to make sure someone might think different. I, I think everyone knows who I am, like I said, and I don't know what Drew Brees was thinking. I, I think he got caught in a hornet's nest and, um, it was tough. I, 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 I don't know. What would we all do in his shoes? I mean, I was, it was a tough gig and it was a heck of a, heck of a turnaround in, in a, in a 24 hour time span, you know? So it was tough. I heard you say that you tell your players that you love them. At what point do you tell your players that you love them? Um, when the, when they earn, I guess the respect, you know, um, when I know that they're, they're where their heart's at right away, when I see their work ethic and, they're working. I almost feel guilty that they're working for me. It's like you know, I I, I do. Uh, I appreciate their hard work and what they put into and what they sacrifice. Whenever I see someone learning to sacrifice, like um, I would do, I, I feel like I owe them even more every day. And so, um, but some of these guys, like Zane Washington, he's a fourth-year player. He's going through the worst. He's probably going to get drafted this year. I hope so. But he's going through injuries that have kept him, and then a COVID that has kept him from achieving. And he just keeps coming back for more. He's so loyal to the school. He's never, you know, he's such a colonel. Like this summer, he hit three, I'd say about 320. I'm going to throw that number out there in the Northwoods League, which is a great league. He didn't get to play for two months and just shows up in a really good league and hits 320 and puts up great numbers. And he didn't do that for himself. I think he, he genuinely did that for his teammates. Like I think he wanted to hit 320, 330 just to make sure his teammates knew that he was working hard for him. You know, so I use him as an example and love him to death because he's so loyal. He's so hungry. And whenever we have an exit meeting or an interview one-on-one, it's, Coach, what do you think I can do better for us? It's not, you know, my number's this, my this, my this. It's always how can I be better for our team? How can I be a better leader? It's powerful stuff. And there's nothing else but love whenever they say something like that, you know. Did I read this right? You're the second winningest coach in Nichols State baseball history. Is that right? Yeah. 11 years you've been there? This is my 11th season. Wow. Starting in January, it'll be my 11th year. And I love your story because you're scrappy. I like to think of myself as scrappy. Zane Washington is a leadoff. Were you a leadoff? Yeah, I am. I've always I was, am. <laughs> so <laughs> a question I like to ask leadoff hitters, I was too until my senior year and then they moved me back in the lineup. But what would you do differently if you had to do it over again? Like, what do you know now that would make you a better leadoff hitter if you had to do it all over again? How easy it is to hit with two strikes. So mad at myself for not shrinking the zone and thinking I had to touch everything, you know? Mm. And I did a little bit towards, and literally the last month of my career, I was okay. You go through that phase, like my freshman year, like, why am I striking out so much? And then a coach tells you, well, quit taking the pitches you're supposed to be hitting, you know. So all of a sudden, you don't, you're not selective. You start hitting every fastball you see, regardless. And then you get through another little phase of trying to be selective again. And then, um, then you get to that two strike and you start hitting breaking balls backside. And it's like when you finally make it in your career. <laughs> so I had no issue being down 0-2 in the count. I had no issue being in two-two count. Like I wasn't going to chase anything in the dirt. I'd gotten past that point in my career, which now looking back, I wish it wouldn't have taken so long. I wish I wouldn't have been so hard-headed and, and uh, you know, been more myself instead of trying to be somebody else in a younger stage. Always trying to look at somebody on TV and say, well, "If he does this, I'm going to do this." It's great that we can emulate him, 
but there's certain skills that we have that no one knows about that that's in the heart, in the chest or, or between the legs that makes you that toughness, that skill, that, that figure it out that sometimes we don't, we wait too late to figure out and, about ourselves and our career. And I wish I could change those things from an earlier point. I'm, I'm the same way. I used to watch Lenny Dykstra and think, oh, that's what a leadoff hitter should be. Sure. I need to be like this yes. leadoff hitter. Yeah, I took way too many pitches yeah. thinking that that's what a leadoff hitter did. Right. He drew a lot that's of right. walks. And that was a mistake. Yeah. I'm sort of a personal coach now. And one of the things that I try to impart to them is that you want to try to preempt mistakes in your 20s by picking the brains of those in their 30s and 40s who have been there. Find out what mistakes they made in their life, like not living within their means or trying to or, or being susceptible to FOMO, seeing what kids are doing on Instagram and sure. driving Lamborghinis. That's not what you want. Sure. And so talk to those who have done that, who have maybe screwed up and made that correction because there's so many things that had I, I, w- I was too soon, old, too late, smart. Right. If I had learned these things about hitting when I was 16, totally changed my life. And so that's why I get them reading books like The Richest Man in Babylon, Rich yeah. Dad, Poor Dad. I want them to get the information as soon as possible, because if you want to live a bigger life, it's not, it's not knowledge that we don't have. Yeah. Knowledge is, is everywhere. It's abundant. What we're lacking nowadays is attention. Yeah. So we have a scarcity of attention. People aren't able to focus. And it's understandable, or I shouldn't say it's understandable, but it's easy to see why we just have so many goddamn distractions. If you're going to be successful and do what you talked about earlier, which is separate yourself, you've got to learn to focus. You've got to learn to uh, love the process. That's where you live, right? So be engaged in what you're doing. Learn as much as you can, as fast as you can, and that's going to lead to mastery and greatness and achieving things beyond your wildest dreams sooner than you ever imagined possible. Yeah. I read a story about you driving to Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, and eating MREs in the car. <laughs> wow. Tell me about those days. That was tough. That was, um, it wasn't tough at the time, though. Like, so I, I, I get a, I'm at Pearl River Community College go with J.R. Teagues, who's the AD now at Southeastern. He was the head coach of Pearl River. Takes me with him as his second assistant at Southeastern. And uh, we are, I am transitioning into going from Pearl River, filling out my resignation papers, which it's not like I was making tons of money. I think I just, in year one, I made $0 a year. In year two, I made $9,000 that year. I was going to ask you about that because (laughs) when I have talked to the team, one of the things that I brag about is I made $22,000 my first year out of school. Yes. How much did you make your first year out of school? Zero. Zero dollars. But I thought I was a millionaire because I had a meal ticket in the cafeteria. So um, I was finishing up school, had a loan, um, trying to grow up. And I did. And thank God that I I started at Pearl River in Poplarville, Mississippi, because I had to learn some things about, you know, life a little bit and learn how to be a coach and learn that, you know what, I'm not going to be throwing a lot of money. I better go give some lessons here and do some things on the side for a little cash. But if this is what I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to have to get where I'm going. And so I resigned from Pearl River and I'm going to moving to Hammond and Hurricane Katrina hits. And I literally just resigned and I was going in on Monday morning. Katrina hit. Literally Sunday night, Monday morning, 
And I was going in that Monday morning to sign a con- a one-year contract at Southeastern, a year-to-year contract. Well, of course, that didn't happen because we weren't in school for the next two weeks. And um, the state goes into a hiring freeze. And this is this is August. So, you know, the hiring freeze is extended throughout the entire semester. I didn't have any money. Uh, whew, that was tough. And I just moved into an apartment and it was not cheap. <laughs> so <laughs> I had saved some money. I worked camps everywhere. I was killing it. Working camps at Ole Miss, Mississippi State all summer. Like that's, it was so neat to be able to do that as a young coach when I'm 23 because you're networking, you're meeting coaches, you're working hard, you're getting three or $400 a week and you think it's a lot and you're saving it, you know. And so I did that all summer long. And I'm just saving as much money as I possibly can. And uh, thank God I did because Katrina hits and there's nothing there. And I have an apartment and I have to figure out how to pay rent for September. And I just, there's nothing there. And so we can't practice. We can't do anything. I don't have a dollar to my name and I'm not, I'm too prideful to tell my dad that I can't do this. Right. And so, or my family, like I'm going to division one coach, I'm going to do this. And uh, so I would jump in the truck with thankfully Mr. Ronnie Ortiz, who is Jay's dad, who's the AD now at Southeastern he was here on a construction company on the on the coast in Mississippi. And he said, you can come gut houses for me. You can come work construction. And he said, there's a lot of it. And like, holy smokes, I'll do whatever it takes for a dollar. So I would hitch a ride to Bay St. Louis. I didn't have any money to even buy breakfast. I, did, I literally, I had no money. It just is what it is. I didn't look at it as a bad thing. I just, I could not go to the store and get anything. Um, so I'm hitching rides to Bay St. Louis and getting rides back and, um, I would eat. I wouldn't even eat breakfast. I would work. I would gut houses, which was probably the most disgusting thing I think I'd ever done at that point. It was. It was rough. I mean, St. Louis was a disaster after Katrina. So we're gutting houses. It's it's sludge. It's it's gross. It's clean. But I'm working my butt off, and the guy would hand me an MRE for lunch, and I would eat it, and then I would haul butt back to Hammond, literally changing the car, throw some clothes on, run out to practice, hit fungo, and I'm sure that. I didn't even think that I probably smelled terrible in front of our players. I'm just, I'm working my, but it didn't, I didn't think of it like this is, this sucks. I'm not doing this. I'm quitting. I never looked at it that way because I would literally think about going to Omaha, driving back to, to Hammond, or I thought about a conference championship or what do I need to do to, to be that kind of coach or, or how can I be a better coach today? I would never, I never looked at it as a bad thing. I just wanted to make sure the guy I was working for, the construction guy that gave me an opportunity, I was like, I, just, I can't screw this opportunity up. <laughs> I, I got to have show him I have a good work ethic. And so I just try to work as hard as I could every day I was there. And Wait, why? Why did you have to show that to him? Were you thinking you know. would go into construction afterwards? No, I just, my dad told me, don't impress anyone, anyone with your words, impress them with your work ethic. You have to work like that. That's important that you show people, you know how to work and you have skill. He's always said that still to this day, he tells our grandkids, I'm one of eight kids and he's got 39 grandchildren and he will tell you your work ethic is important. That meant a lot to him. Let me add something there because I think this is important. My dad demonstrated a serious work ethic for me when I was a kid and he believed the same principle. However, He was adamant about not kissing anybody's ass. And what that kept me from doing was interacting with adults when I should have been. So even when I got into the corporate world, I would work my tail off. But when it came time for promotions, I didn't let it be known that I was interested in the promotion. And so I wouldn't even be considered. Let them know that you're working your tail off because maybe they see it. But you have to probably remind them what you're doing and that you're accomplishing X, Y, and Z. I'm responsible for X amount of revenue being brought into the company. I've 
I've gotten this this many new logos, which is new business to the company. You yeah. see what I'm saying? Sure. So I think that kept me from achieving as much as I could have because of this concern that my peers were going to think I was kissing coaches' ass by by even interacting with them and having conversations yeah. with them. Yep. So if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't be as as afraid to talk to parents and coaches, but I sure. was. I was intimidated and and that was a mental block that I had. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Please carry on. No, I, it's, uh, I wanted to, you're right. I, you're exactly right. I wanted to make sure, and those things I'm not good at, but I wanted to make sure that uh, when they looked over, they're like, your work is neat. Like, we need you back out here. Like, that meant a lot to me because of how I work, not what I said. Or You're right. I didn't want to kiss anybody's ass or anything like that. I just wanted to, I wanted to work and I want people to be, take pride in what I did. And so that meant a lot to me. And that's how I was getting cash at the time. And uh, then we start, you know, we really got into practice. And I didn't get a check from Southeastern Louisiana University until March. And so I went from August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March. And at this time, my my wife now was not really, she wasn't my fiance yet. I couldn't afford to buy a ring. Mm. So she needs a, she needed a ring to be, to get into pharmacy school because she's in a Canadian. And they don't accept non-Mississippi res- residents at Ole Miss. And so it was a crazy time. Like I wasn't, it just slapped you in the face. Like you're not playing baseball anymore. You're not in college. You're not that little 22-year-old that gets to wake up and do whatever the coach says. Like you got to go get some money. You got to, so I'm, I'm fighting to figure out how to get a ring. She needs it. I don't have it. Um, you know, you just hit that point in life. And and so I'm fighting and and it all works itself out. Like it just, if you just stick to the course, if you just stick to the plan, what I went through made me a man and it's what God wanted me to go through. And if that's the route I have to go, then that's just it. It's it's such as life. We're going to, I needed that. I needed to be cleansed at that point in time. I needed to be ironed and I just needed to be toughened up that those, those moments toughen you up. It it, it puts some, you know, uh, some manliness to you. And, 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 and I wasn't a man yet. And I needed to be that. I, I needed to, I needed to go through that that scar and uh, get get calloused a little bit. And then it, it had to happen. And that's what I well, I wasn't scared. I didn't back down from it. And, and it made me appreciate my job even more because I think guys go through coaching now. I watch young coaches; they just want to go to the the pinnacle right away. They don't understand. And the guys that don't go through that grind, they don't last very long in this profession. Mm. They don't go through that that starve. I just feel like that's part of the business world. Maybe too. I haven't experienced that. I've watched my dad do it. When my dad was bankrupt, when I was, you know, a young kid, and I watched him go through some tough times, and I'm watching him now not have tough times, but he raised a big family because of it. And anyway, so Janelle, seven kids. You're one of seven. I'm one of eight. I'm one of eight. I'm, I'm one of eight, and and we have thirty, thirty-nine grandkids, and it's a <laughs> big family. So. Uh, yeah, get some of that on COVID on Thanksgiving, huh? I mean, it's we're not gonna have small groups. It's for illegal, Christmas. I think. In certain states, you can't <laughs> right. have more than ten. Right. You'll so be filling three and a half houses. Yeah. So it's uh, it's awesome. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Katrina was different here. It was hard. It was no phone service. It was I'm the camp coordinator, and my head coach and my boss wants to have a camp here around Thanksgiving time and around January, how am I going to get in touch? Like I was reaching out to kids in New Orleans. You couldn't even call anybody. Like times have changed, man, since Katrina and and the phone service, you couldn't reach out and talk to anyone. It was like, how in the world am I going to get this out to New Orleans? 
because I want kids from New Orleans coming here. Like that time, Rummel was loaded, and all the Catholic schools in New Orleans were loaded. We were trying to make a concerted effort to get New Orleans kids from the private school and the Catholic school league. And so I'm hurting, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't know if people are going to sign up for this. We have a camp for Thanksgiving, and there's 100 kids there. And that was a big deal because Katrina had still, it was hard to get in touch with people. And then we have a showcase. And at that time, no one had showcases. It wasn't popular. You just didn't do a showcase in your school. And me and my buddy Chad Kai, who's the recruiting coordinator at Texas A&M University now, tremendous guy, great coach. He's going to be a great head coach soon. Um, like, let's have a showcase. We don't know anybody here. He, had, he was coming from Meridian Community College. I'm coming from Pearl River. We're trying to learn Louisiana kids. Let's have a showcase and just try to invite every high school around here to this thing. And it's like, okay, let's try. I don't know how we're going to get word out. But I literally called everybody I possibly could, landlines, Cell phones were hard. I, I reached out. I sent stuff in the mail. I would drive around and, and literally to other cities and tell people about it. And we were having to turn people. We had 200-something kids show up for that showcase in early January. when I And I, I, I was thrown away. I was blown away. I wasn't ready for it. We didn't have enough workers. We didn't. But there was like, it's just people showing up everywhere. And I had to keep people in the parking lot. Stay there. We're going to figure out how to get you in here. There's no way I'm turning away your 125 bucks. Yeah. I, I get it. This is a big deal. So I'm overwhelmed. I'm freaking out. And I remember telling a kid who came from Labadeeville, Louisiana. He was at Assumption High School. I said, listen, man, I want you in this camp more than you ever know. Like I, He came up and you could tell he's just a hard-nosed throwback kid. And he had some buddies with him. I said, if you just give me to after this camp starts, I'm going to figure out how to squeeze you in here. And it just so happened that years later, when I got to South, to, from went from Southeastern to Nichols, he was the first kid I called to try to get him to commit to come play for us, and he committed on the spot. Beautiful. It was Stephen Gote. So everything comes full circle. It's an amazing thing. Um, at some point in the next year, I was able to figure out how to pay for a ring. Thank God, the uh, Keith Vorhoff, who's an assistant coach for us, his uncle owned a jewelry store in Baton Rouge. <laughs> Vor was actually coached coached at, at University of Kentucky for many years, um, but. Uh, his his uncle had a jewelry store and he helped me pay credit, pay you know, <laughs> open up a line of credit with him. And I was able to pay off a ring and propose to my wife the second year I was at Southeastern. So, uh, which at that point in time, I was making $10,500 a year. So <laughs> I was rolling, man. But yeah. And look, if you want to marry this then and this money, then, then you really love me. So she did it. And um, the rest is history. Beautiful. I want to go back to something I mentioned earlier about being a little intimidated or scared to talk to the coach for fear of repercussions of, of from peers of thinking that I'm kissing coach's ass or whatever. I'm a college kid. If I played for you right now, I wouldn't have as many interactions with you as I should. Yeah. And I think that we would both benefit from. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you encourage kids to come to you? You know, it's it's almost cliche for the boss to say, my door's always open. Uh, yeah, you say it that. Really open? Yeah, right. right. I don't want my office to be the, the principal's office. You know that feeling you have when you're walking down the hall and as a kid and you're going to the principal's office and you step in, it's like, this place is different. Yes. Yeah. I don't want my office to be that way. I want it to be pretty transparent as long as there's there's respect for the organization. I think kids are very scared early to come talk to me and so i've got to do a good job of talking to them 
like so during BP, I'll walk around to our infielders and talk to them a little bit. And the younger guys, I'll walk up to them. I'll go out of my way. This is where I'm terrible. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I've gotten better at just reaching out to someone I hadn't talked to in a couple. But you'll go, I'll go through practice and not talk to a player for a week and a half. We have 45 players this year after COVID. And so there's certain times where I don't interact with the pitchers. And I've always thought, I need to do a better job here. So I'll go into the pitchers meeting early because our players are always early for a meeting. I'll just go cut up with them a little bit and let them see a lighter side of me. I'll go sit in with them when they're throwing. Um, I don't have to correct them, and they love that. You know, because I turn all of our pitching stuff over to our coach. And so I have a really good relationship with them and probably a lesser relationship with the hitters because they're scared to let me down. Mm. And they don't want me to think maybe that I'm, I'm, they're not tough or whatever it may be. Because I know as a player, I was, I was, I, was, I wanted my coach boy. If he came up to me and talked to me, it was a big deal. Like, yes, I got his respect. Mm-hmm. I did something right. Yeah. And so uh, I think about that a lot. You know, you're still the boss. You still have to be a manly leader. Um, but at the same time, I want, I'm res- I just want to have a relationship with my shortstop, who's a freshman. Right now, I wanted him to be able to trust that he can come talk to me and say, Coach, I don't understand this. I don't want you to go three years without telling me that because I want to be a really, really good teacher for you. That bothers me if I'm not. And so if you don't tell me that what I'm telling you is not doesn't make sense, I'm going to be really disappointed in myself and you. So I, I want there to be some chemistry. Mm-hmm. And, and I want, But I want them to know that, look, man, when it's time to go to war, it's time to go to war. And, and, and when it's time to... Put your mouthpiece in. We got to do it together. But I want you to be able to come talk to me if you don't understand something. So I have to do more, though. I have to film and bring film and bring the guys into my office in groups and small groups and show them film and let them talk to me. The best thing I think for me to be a better teacher, though, is to work in, with us one on two. So for like, for example, with the infielders, I want to work with two guys at a time. And I actually. I uh, heard Chase talk about it too, and it really motivated me. If I'm working with one guy and there's 12 infielders and we're all working together, we're not going to get the same product out. We're not going to work as hard, as clean. There's not going to be presentation. There's not going to be com- group, proper communication because I'm talking to a mass group of guys, and there's only four positions. But if I'm working with two guys, they're going to work harder. They're going to say more. You're going to understand a lot more what they don't see. And I'm going to give more feedback because they're going to hide things in front of 12. Mm-hmm. They're not going to hide anything when it's one-on-one. They're not going to hide. They can't. So they have to do a better job of, I mean, I have to do a better job of that. And I have, and I've loved it. I've absolutely loved working with guys in small groups before practice, one-on-two max. You know, when we get that big group, I'm telling you, it's less reps. It's more time for conversation in a huddle. You're, you're really you're out there for 30 minutes, but how much of that are you really working? Are you just out there? Mm-hmm. I've worked smarter, not harder. Well, when I'm out there with two guys, man, I, that's what they do in the big leagues. That's what guys do in pro ball and minor league baseball. They're working with smaller groups, and, and you get more, and it's you know it's 20 minutes. But, boy, you got, they can't walk after that. They got their work in, mm-hmm. and they feel complete, and there's no uh, question marks there. So I just try to do those things to make sure that uh, they hear my voice and they feel like they can talk to me, which is still difficult. No matter what I do, it's still going to be difficult for some. Well, when one of them walks in and he looks you in the eye and talks to you and you know it was a struggle for him to do it and he just crosses that hurdle, you, that's a lot, you've, you've accomplished a lot. You know, It's a big deal and it builds confidence for life yeah. for when you have to talk to your employer right. later, your Absolutely. boss. 
you mentioned Chase. One of the things that he and I have talked about is how when you're a disciplined person, it's not a choice. It's almost who you are. Right. It's it's a way of life. So you brought up or I brought up the the MRE story because when I read that story, I was I was so impressed with it. It reminded me of the sort of scrappy that I was. I remember I had to drive to Kansas to play in the Jayhawk one summer. I was supposed to pick up Shane Human. Is that his name from Shane LSU? Left-handed pitcher. Yeah. So I was supposed to pick him up, and he canceled at the last minute. And so I had to drive 12 hours by myself. Huh. So I thought, I'm going to take a big Gatorade jug. I stopped at the grocery store and got a big Gatorade jug, and I'm not going to stop. I'm going to go all the way through, and if I have to pee, I'm just going to go in this Gatorade bottle. And when I got there, the coaches were so impressed with that. They said, this is the kind of kid we want. We've got a stacked team here. I was the leadoff hitter. Two-hole was Brandon Fahey, played shortstop at UT, went on to play a little bit in the big leagues. Our three-hole was the three-hole at Alabama. This team was so incredibly stacked but he kept talking about throughout the summer how he wanted the mindset of a kid that is going to piss in the bottle on the way to kansas and i never thought twice about it like it was such i mean i still kind of do that i mean just to save time so i don't have to stop so is that sort of your mentality it's just kind of like your habits are so ingrained, it becomes part of who you are, yeah. this discipline that you've incorporated. I guess another example could be, I don't set my alarm usually. If I have to wake up, oh, I've done this for years, I sleep for seven hours and 15 minutes. So I set my timer because I've figured out how to maximize my energy so that I don't get the two o'clock feeling like I'm drained yeah. and I need to take a nap. Sure. So I've, I've figured that out. It's, it's part of getting to know yourself, spending time in solitude, journaling, taking notes about yourself. So that's just who I am. And if somebody saw me like, what are you doing? They'd think I was a weirdo, but I'm like, this is just my way of, of carrying yeah. myself. Sure. I, I don't consider myself, this isn't a disciplined thing. It's just who you are. Yeah. So anyway, I love the MRE story. Yeah, I you, think it's, it's uh, I look back and I appreciate that I was I had to do that. Yeah, you know, right? I think it's a big deal. And it, it carries over, right? I mean, don't you think that skill that you learned, if you could call it a skill set, is transferable? It's something that you've carried forward because- I heard Coach Ogeron give you guys a talk years ago, and I was taking notes, and and he said, the work ethic you develop between the ages of 18 and 22 is going to carry you forward the rest of your life. When I give talks, I still use that line because I love it, and I so believe it. Everything that they learn in these years is is like the foundation for the rest of their life. They're so going to appreciate you years down the road. the mistakes that they make. You make sure you don't do it again, and you're not going to teach your son or your coach or where you run your profession. Like, I got a lot of guys that are business majors. There's guys on my team that are going to run businesses one day. They've got to be able to talk and speak in front of some, another man, and that's not an easy thing to do unless you're cutting up or joking, right, mm-hmm. which makes it easier. Right. Which, if you have a group of, of jokesters or guys that like to cut up and party as, as primary, then they're not they're not on the same mission. But uh, no, I, I I truly believe in all of that. I, I believe that stories make us all. I think Michael Jordan's story of not making the team and how he broke down to his mom and she could have easily called the principal or transferred schools or just stopped. And she did. And she's like, you better start working harder. Absolutely. I wish every mother in the world could have heard that forever and just understood. And I just I thought of my mom whenever I didn't make the All-Star game Ninth, nine or ten years old, I didn't. All my buddies made. I was like, "Well, I think I'm just not going to play baseball next year." She said, 
she started laughing in the car. She said, yes, you are. <laughs> you are going to play. You don't quit. We don't quit here. And so that changes your life. That moment. We all have. And so I got to be careful as a parent, too. Like, we all have that moment. Or as a coach, you all have that moment where you can allow it, and that's what it becomes. If my mother would allow me to quit, I would have been a quitter forever because I'd have just stopped. Every time I got to the, the goal line on fourth and one, I'd have just stopped. Mm-hmm. Fourth and inches, I'd have just stopped. I wouldn't have put my mouthpiece in and drove harder. You know, would have would have always quit, and she didn't. Nope. I don't care if you hate it or not. You're playing. Uh, Mom, I don't think I want to finish the season. Uh, yeah, you're going to finish. You know, it's, <laughs> so it's it's um, drive, I think. We all have that. Now, you, now that you're a leader and you run something or you're in charge of someone or a father, you have a chance to, Dad, I don't want to go to practice today. My six-year-old, you know, you're going. I don't want I don't want to go either. I just want to tell her. I don't want you to go either. I want to hang out with you, but you're committed to this. And whenever the season's over, we'll talk, you know, but our players are the same way. They, they want to naturally give in to some things, and that's why I'm a coach. I can't let it happen. Totally different subject. My biggest deal is players want to give up whenever they run into the brand. They run into, and baseball, it's different, right? Like anybody can make it to Omaha, but Nichols can't play in the in the Orange Bowl in football, you know, or probably not going to make the Final Four in basketball. But we can go to regionals and super regionals, you know, like it is there. Like it's, I tell them the Roger Bannister story the whole, all the time. Like no one can run the four-minute mile. Really? Well, he ran a, ran a sub four-minute mile, and thousands of people in the next year ran a sub four-minute mile. Was well, just got to break the barrier. What's your barrier? You know, and so it's it all. I think it's all relative to what the original question was. Is you just got to keep going. You can't just give in. And so I read the Roger Bannister story to our players every year. Like, don't let you're 21, and there's a 21 year old that looks exactly like you on the other team. You're gonna let it dominate you because you're a fan. Because passion outdoes logic in our sport. Passion will always outdo logic in my 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 life. And so. I didn't. I didn't come up. I didn't play at Florida State. I didn't. I didn't ride a coattail of a coach anywhere. I didn't have anything. I had to eat a damn MRE to coach this level, and so that's what I have to do. And and I had to fight people and argue with people, and you had to go through all these tough times. And parents that didn't appreciate, or 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 players that don't understand, you just have to you just have to keep going. And 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 so got to be relentless. Uh, it's critical. You can't you can't stop at the fourth and fourth and goal. You have to go for it. And if you don't, then if you don't make it, then I think you'll be at peace with it. Yeah, shoot for the stars. You'll you'll at least land That's at the right. moon right? if you don't make it. For a little bit. So I was going to ask what drives you. I imagine it's this idea you had earlier of your wife not having to bust her ass as sure. much as she is. We have a great football coach at Nichols, yeah. Coach Rebo, mm-hmm. who my wife and I had a chance to spend some time with. I could see wanting to run through a brick wall for him what have you picked up from him through the years he's older and so he, he can share more he's a calming influence he's who's someone the only person on our campus that i can turn to because you just don't really want to turn to your assistants for everything you have to vent to someone a little bit and he has an ability to calm me down and because he knows what i'm saying he's living it too you know and because it's politics you're venting about mostly um no no, it's 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 um, man. I wish I could do this better. I wish I had this, and or can you believe this? Or or things that he vents to me about too when he comes in and closes the door and says, "Can you believe this?" 
And so you have to have that person you can go to because we both don't have a special assistant to the head coach. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we are each other's special assistant to the head coach. Because you know, that's you know. a common thing at LSU or? Yes. Oh, okay. In Florida. Nick Saban has like six of them. Oh, you okay. just turn to him and say, go get this done right now. Well, I, You know, we either figure it out on our own or we don't. And so we have someone to lean on and we lean on each other for a lot. And so he means a lot. He's meant a lot to me and he's brought uh, life to our university and made things uh, better. And so it's, it's, it's tr been tremendous. You've told me that you have regular interaction with your priest. Yeah. How does that help? Um, because I don't want to be like at the end of the day, I, 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 my, the way I was raised and I have to remind myself because I can get tempted into not being the man I, I think my mother and father and family would want me to be is I don't want to, no matter what, like if I suck as a coach or if I'm not successful in, in my industry or I don't want, I guess that fear of, of, you know, it didn't work out as the wins and losses, but you know, I, I, maybe I have a little bit different relationship with life or the world or, or with, with religion as I did before. And so that matters a lot to me. It really, I, I was raised from a strict Catholic upbringing and, and so I've got to make sure that I don't turn into uh, the, the temptations of the world. I don't turn into the, the, Look, Thibodeau's an amazing place, but it's a smaller college town. And so I don't want to get caught up in the local, po you know, popular vote or the local gossip. I just, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, uh, I don't know. I just want to make sure that, that I'm a man and, and I'm a, and I'm a God fearing man. And, and I want to make sure that uh, I can vent to him. And, and, um, I feel like it makes me a better leader for our players. I'll be honest with you. I feel like I can speak more properly to our players. And remember that 18 to 22 year old impact. I feel like it helps me because I can be tempted quickly. I can be tempted into frustration because I'm so competitive. I get frustrated and immediately turn into locker room talk or um, what you would say on a field, you know, it comes out of you sometimes. And I, I want to be better. I want to be the best man I can be for my wife. Who's learning to be a Catholic now. Um, I have to not say some things sometimes because I don't want to just make something up, right? I want to make sure that um, she knows that I'm trying really hard to help her become the best Catholic she can be because she didn't go to church growing up. And then our players, like, I want them to see how I'm raising my kids because I know they're looking, right? And I want to have, I want to be, I don't want everyone to be insecure. I want to, I want to, and I am, but I do know I get comments like, well, I see you doing this. And you're like, man, you were looking. Like, where'd you see that at? You know, how the heck did you see me do my sign on the cross? I thought no one saw that, you know, or, or just, just taking some time to pray or, or, you know, I just want to make sure that, that I can back up what I, what I, what I say. And, and, uh, and I got to use him a little bit. Does he use you too? You think it's possible? I do. I, I think I've had some players that have become Catholic since they've come to Nichols. And I think that's what drives him as a campus minister and a campus ministry and guys that, uh, I, I, I think so. I think he likes to hear leadership stuff. And, and, uh, there's two priests I actually lean on in, in Thibodeau and, and, um, one of them's, a, you know, a, a priest that, that used to run track at Nichols that became a really good friend, Father Mark Toops, who's now in Grand Isle, but I've always used him for leadership talks. He's tremendous, man. He's he talks about, you know, he takes has a way of using religion to motivate the crap out of you. It's about the, the, you know, the way things were at one point. And 
Um, but but uh, our, our campus is, um, priest is, is pretty tremendous too and was actually a childhood friend that I trust and uh, was a family friend growing up. So that, that makes it easier. But yes, I think that from a leadership standpoint, he asks questions too and that's interesting. What makes them so interesting? Is it the time they spend studying the Word of God? Probably the commitment level to, to not having to um, I know we hear horror stories, but it really is a small percentage compared to the, the amazing stories of, of priests. And um, I think they're just a commitment level to every day. They've got to be relentless with avoiding temptations and, and, and being a man of what they're supposed to be. And they have a lot of commitment they have to do every single day. <laughs> and uh, they're in charge of a lot of people. And everything they do just as a coach is being watched and evaluated. Every step they make and every time they talk, even if it's for 10 minutes on Sunday that you go to church, somebody's going to walk out of there really pr- happy or really frustrated with, man, that was a really bad sermon. Huh. You know, And but that guy never gets to go to their job and say, man, that was a really bad job. You just, that, yeah. that, that meeting you just held was really poor. You know? Something I've never considered. Yeah. So I just, that, that, the, the amount of time that they put into that 10 minute sermon or 15 minute sermon on Sunday and how much they, that effort they put into that and the effort they put into their job amazes me. I agree. I used to watch Joel Osteen just for the presentation aspect of yeah, it. The I guy do. doesn't stutter. I'm with you. I do too. He's so incredible. impressive. How and he you're right. He, he probably you. puts five hours per five minutes yeah. of public speaking, if yes. I had to guess. It's really impressive. So have you always been religious? Did your parents instill those values in you when you were a kid? Yeah. I was, and 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 you have to. You, they get challenged when you get to college, especially when you. I went to uh, Baptist University in William Carey, and met my wife there. And you're away. You're in college. You get tempted to never, you know, go, not having to go to church, or you know, a, a strict Southern Baptist University is questioning some things about what you do, and you just get a. You really find yourself as a man. You get put in that hole and you're back against the wall and you're like, okay, am I going to be defensive here? Am I going to be proud of what I am? And so you have to find a church and you have to do it on your own and there's no one's mom's not there to make you do it. So uh, it was something I grew up with and there's a reason for it and, and I've stuck with it and, and um, take still great, take a lot of pride. And you send your kids to Catholic school? Yes. My daughter, Ella, is in kindergarten at, kindergarten at St. Genevieve and Blake is at She's able to still be on campus with me at the little uh, uh, little Colonel's Academy, but next year she'll begin at St. Genevieve as well. Very cool. Do you want to do some fun questions before yeah, we cut absolutely. out? absolutely. Social media, net negative or net positive for society? Right now, it seems to be negative. And why do you say that? Because I feel like it's people think it's the majority, and it really isn't, of, of what the world thinks. And you can put anything out there. And it feels like we're in a social media-driven world right now. Almost as if real life is secondary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you have to remind yourself that only something like 2% of people are on Twitter. Yes, exactly. Is not wanting something just as good as having it? Wow. That's a, that's a tremendous question. If not as, yeah, um... I would say no. Mm. I would say no. Care to expound? And the way I would look at it is if, if I don't want something, that means I'm not driven to to take care of it or nurture it or make it grow or make it better. 
And so I try to keep my eyes and and my mind in that same, you know, tunnel vision and, and keep going to what that ultimate goal is. So I try to eliminate clutter as much as possible. Good answer. What's your favorite big league ballpark that you've ever visited? I've been to Wrigley. Loved it. I've been to some really good ones. Believe it or not, I've been to Fenway, and I thought it was so cool. But as far as just a really great ballpark, I would have to say Baltimore. Really, really cool. I love the the colors, the green, dark, like the baseball is always visible, the orange and black colors. It's a really neat park. And I, something about those numbers falling when Cal Ripken broke that record on that warehouse and outfield, that just stuck with me for life. And never t- <laughs> So when I went to Baltimore to visit with Bobby – and I kept looking at that warehouse. All I could envision was Cal Ripken running around this field, mm. you know. And so I love that. I love that place. And Seattle was probably one of the really coolest experiences. I can't say Dodger Stadium was pretty amazing too. I can name them all. So you got a top five. I definitely like. have a. T- <laughs> I definitely have a top five. I've been to all of those except Seattle, and I haven't been to Dodger Stadium, but I enjoyed Baltimore, Fenway, and Wrigley. The biggest surprise of each, Wrigley was smaller than I expected. Yes. It felt like you were in the friendly confines. At Fenway, that Sitco sign in left center field is way further away than I expected. It's like three blocks away. And then Baltimore, I think about Ripken and Ken Griffey Jr. hitting balls out of right field to see it sail in front of that building. Right. There's something about that warehouse. You're right. The way it the way it frames the entire sure. setting is amazing. Yes. And then walk on it before a game and just, I didn't know you could do that. I thought it was like a street there where you couldn't get there. And then I walk on it. I'm like, this is incredible, you know? Yeah. And it makes me concerned after you and I went to the World Series a few weeks ago in Arlington. I'm a little concerned that we're going to get away from that and start developing these mall type oh, fields. Man, I'm with you on that. I'm worried about that. It was but, symmetrical. Yeah. There was nothing old school about it. No. You Plenty almost, of room. Plenty yeah. of room to walk around. <laughs> well, you had just made the comment the inning before about how it's a graveyard. You can't hit a ball out. Right, and then sure. a kid hits the his second opposite right. field home run. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys had taken batting practice there, so you had some yes. intimate yeah, experience. Right. Yeah. What is the best college facility that you've played or coached at? Well, I'm going to answer that in two ways. I, I think that um, without a doubt, I thought Ole Miss was cool, but Mississippi State was really neat on a Sunday afternoon. Tremendous. And I can tell you a cool story about that in a second. But I think the best, most intense atmosphere that's really tough to beat, and it's maybe because I'm from there, but when you play it in Lafayette on a Wednesday night and there's 3,500 people there and they're on top of you and it's loud, it's really cool. It reminds me of the old Alex Box. Really cool. But the new Alex Box is kind of like a really nice Corvette. You don't want to scratch it, so it's really not fun. The new Alex box at LSU is similar to the new Yankee Stadium a Probably little bit. Probably so. Yeah. Because it was, man, I remember the first time I coached there, you really, I was trying to talk to our left fielder to position him, and it wasn't, it was 2,000 people. It was on a rainy Tuesday night. But you couldn't, he couldn't hear me. It's just like you were in this 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 bowl, and, and it was loud. And I don't feel that in this one, but Mississippi State, and you feel it. I went out to argue a call at first base in which I was correct. And the umpire knew that I was correct, but Mississippi State got the call and he knew I was coming to argue. So I'm running from third base 
and he just keeps jogging out to right field. Well, of course, he's jogging right into the mouth of the Duty Noble section out in the outfield, right? And if you've ever played at Mississippi State, on the other side of that outfield wall is just a free-for-all. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my Tecklers life. Or? Yes. Mm. Like, you can bring your own wagon in there, trailer in there, whatever you want. You could bring it in there. And so he runs me to the loudest section, and he's pretending like he can't hear me. So I'm like, <laughs> is this guy really running to the 365 sign in right center field? And as I'm getting closer and closer to the wall, he just goes out there to pretend like he's stretching. And he looks up at me. He's like, oh, hey, coach, what do you need? And I'm like, are you shitting me? I just had to run all the way over here <laughs> to talk to you about this. And at that point in time, I was like, forget it, man. Because everyone was wearing me out. And he knew. And he looked at me as I'm going to walk away. And he winks at me. And I'm like, he's son of a <laughs> If I'm an umpire, I'm going to be just like you. <laughs> Speaking of positioning players at the World Series, something I didn't even pick up on is – when they were changing pitchers, the coach gave all of the position players a little piece of paper to put in their hat, yeah. which was the positioning of the players. That's right. And something you explained to me is that's commonplace in correct. college yes. too, correct? Yes. I give our players a scouting report every game. And they keep it in their hat so that they know where to go for yes. each batter. Yeah. Something else you explained to me was this, is it called synchronicity or what's the, the name of the company? That videos. Well, we each. have we do have um, synergy, 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 and it's a software like it keeps track of every single pitch of every pitcher and every hitter, what they do in every single count. It keeps track of velocity in every single count, the percentages you throw fastball, the percentages you throw breaking ball, the percentages of each pitch you throw. So when you get this over the course of a year, you know exactly what a guy is going to do, and you can type in. What does this guy do? What does this reliever do in O2 counts? And it'll show you every O2 pitch he's ever thrown. His arm is it's it's incredible. It's amazing the information you can get right now. It's it's out there, it's expensive, but you can get it. And it's beneficial. Very beneficial. I mean, you would pay a lot of money for it. We do now. You know, we do now. You, and you have to because at one point in time there was a time when we were one of only 10 schools that didn't have synergy. Wow. And so you were hoping that it wouldn't break out, but it's, you know, it's Five, six, seven thousand dollars a year after you get the system, but it, it definitely you need the information. You have to have it. I mean, it's 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 out there on you, and uh, we don't have TrackMan, which is what you would see like when we were at the World Series, and they have the huge wall. I mean, the scoreboard in you know right field, the the big the jumbotron on there. It has the horizontal break, the vertical break, like every pitch that has the spin rates. On there, I think that's a little too much for our guys, but there are things that TrackMan can give you. For example, we have a no-hitter going at a university that is in the LCC, and we have a no-hitter going. We're winning two to nothing in the seventh inning, going into the eighth inning. Our lefty's throwing a no-hitter, and next thing you know, they start taking pitches below the waist and swinging at everything they saw above the waist, and he couldn't get an out. And that doesn't come from just the human eye. You know, that comes from software in the back of the clubhouse that you walk back there and say, what in the hell is this guy throwing? In the middle of the game. The next thing you know, and they're not, and you're not supposed to do that, but come on, it, it's, it's, uh, it's there for them. That would be the banging on the trash can equivalent, I would yeah, think. It's pretty close to it, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's a camera in center field at Ray Didier Field in Thibodeau that films every pitch every pitch 
and spits out a spreadsheet to well, you on we, Monday? We download it or upload it, I should say, and send it to the company immediately. When we upload it, it goes into their system. And so as soon as it goes into their system, it completely it cuts up everything. And so we type in a name. For, so like from a recruiting standpoint, if you have Synergy, we had a player or two that we were recruiting from four-year schools that wanted a grad transfer to us uh, during the COVID time. So we type in their name. And all their at-bats that Synergy's ever had on them pops up. Every swing they've ever taken with Synergy pops right up. And so we're never to look at all these things. And so it's, you know, it's beneficial in so many ways. Wow. And, yeah, so as soon as you upload it in, into your, the system, it's there forever. So we kind of poo-pooed the, the behind-the-back transfers earlier, but you also yeah. benefit from it. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. You have to. You're going to be in a bind. Um, and, and those guys, like I have a player from the Citadel, they pulled a scholarship because of COVID. He didn't have anything. He couldn't afford to go back. And it's the Citadel. You're not going to go there for a fifth year, you know? So I had a young man from George Washington University who's a switch hitting catcher. He didn't have the option to go back financially. Couldn't afford it because they were having to make cuts. Like we don't have this money to give a fifth year guy. You know, I just went fundraise for our fifth year guys to, to be able to, to come back, two or three of them that were on scholarship, we just made it work, you know. But some of these guys didn't have it, so we benefited on that too. You mm. know, it, um, they didn't have a scholarship anywhere, and then all of a sudden, we just pounced on the opportunity and they jumped on it. So it's crazy. When I was at Nichols, we had a transfer from Wichita State, Miami, Texas Tech. That's all I can remember off the top of my head. None of them were all conference caliber right. players. Sure. Have you gotten any that have been? All conference caliber. I, I hope. I, I think West Toots is going to be a really good player. Um, he's just a freshman still. I think that uh, Alex Galley is a two lane transfer. I think he's just going to be a good player, just a good solid player. Um, all conference. Our conference is really good. You know, there's good players there. I think one day Basil Williams may be from. You know, he was at Mississippi State. He might be. And I think Anderberg, Greg Anderberg, is a tremendous player and can make a run at it. He's a switch hitting catcher. Uh, he was at George Washington University, and it cost sixty thousand a year to go to school there. And he had gotten his degree, and there was an opportunity to go back without money. He's like, I can't afford this. I gotta go somewhere where I can afford to play, you know, to go. And so, I think he has a chance to be a um, an all conference player. I do, but it's not always the case. It's, you know, I think there's. A, I just think Division One baseball, no matter where you're at, is it's a high level athlete, you know, or a high high caliber th- thinking player. It doesn't always equate to all conference, you know. Something I found fascinating is you told me that players rarely ever watch a baseball game anymore from start to finish. It hurts, and it matters because they don't have that um, gamesmanship, that the the body language, the between pitch, like we just watch these guys and watch what they did when they caught a ground ball between innings or I used to, when I was a kid I, I would go to UL Lafayette games because that, that was my entertainment so I'd go watch U, it was USL at the time and you could just sneak in the right field corner and go watch a game at USL and so me and my brothers would just pop over and watch them play whoever schools you've never heard of before and, and just to watch those guys play catch to me was amazing so I tried to do that you know and uh, they go to a minor league game you, you try to be like that amateur player because he's hungry but our players watch highlights because that's what's on Twitter. Mm. They watch highlights because that's what's on TV. They don't watch a nine-inning baseball game, so they don't really see it. 
you know, and you have to push it on them. Like our, my pitching coach does a tr- great job with our pitchers. He will watch an entire baseball game with the pitching staff to show them pitches thrown, why they're thrown. In his opinion, it's and it does to me. It does a great job because they see the game a little bit different. Right now, they see highlights. And the highlights are strikeouts from pitchers and home runs. Mm. And these are acrobatic defensive plays that only really happen, you know, once in a game maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I want them to watch that routine grounder hit or that bunt that was put in. We never see the bunts on, you know, on on, on highlights. On on Twitter, you see the the incredible stuff or the, the, the acrobatic stuff or the strikeout or the 100-mile-an-hour pitch. And um, so you got to force them to watch a ball game because they don't have baseball mannerisms at, at 18 anymore. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't think I ever didn't get a bunt down. And that's not a braggadocious thing. I would spend 25 minutes a day working on getting bunts down after practice because I thought it was embarrassing for a leadoff hitter not to be able to get a bunt you. down. I agree with you 100%. Why don't players spend 20 minutes a day Working on getting a bunt down. We do now, and I think it blows people's minds. Like, it's a part of our practice every single day. Good. And I make them do it in early work. Like, you're going to do this, and I will give you an example. And it's not a disrespect to any program. It's just not It's not an art anymore. Or maybe it is, and it's, 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 I don't think it's lost. I just think it's ignored because you don't do it. You don't, they don't bunt and travel ball. I go mm. recruiting all over the country or every tournament. They're not, they're not going to lay down a drag. I could see that. They're not going to do it. So I was in the Dominican Republic a couple of summers ago with a young man who probably will start at shortstop for us this year. And I said, hey, these Dominican third basemen, they don't, no one drags here. So th- consider doing it quite a bit. And he looked at me like, what? What the hell said, is that? You don't, you don't <laughs> drag? You're a leadoff hitter. So I coach, I've never bunted it a day in my life. I said, son, how old are you? He said, 17. I'm like, oh my goodness. You're committed to us. I got to show you. Well, lo and behold, this fall, I show him, we worked on drag a lot with him. And I'm like, listen to me, man. You want to hit 240 and borderline not play, or you want to hit 314 and play every day? Because if you're going to steal 15 bases this year, you have to be on first base. <laughs> and one thing's for sure, you can't steal first base. <laughs> so you're either going to punch out and get out the wrong way and pop out, or you're going to drag. And if they get you out, fantastic. It's part of applying pressure. But you're going to learn that game. And he had five drag for hits this fall. And took him, it made his batting average go from 270 to 370 for the fall. Well, it was 18 games. But still, it's so easy to teach now. And uh, West Toops had never dragged before. And, and he's doing it. And Bezos never laid down a drag before an X. And it just changes their game. And I put them on the side like, hey, what do you think you're here for? You think you're here to be an RBI guy or still bases for us? Like kids don't know their role. And I said, well, if you're here to be on base, then you're going you're gonna to get hit by pitches. You're going to walk. You're going to drag. And, oh, yeah, you'll hit. But the pressure isn't on you to do that. I'm not forcing you to hit 360. That's hard to do. This game is difficult. But if you do the things that don't require any talent, like just turn your shoulder and get hit by a fastball, we're going to score runs when you're on first base. I have a player on our team, Dane Simon, that we score 69% of the time when he touches first base. What are you doing striking out? Why are you hitting the ball in the air? Why are you trying to hit a homer? You're going to hit two this year. You know what I mean? Or just try to hit the baseball on the ground, you know, and which is hard to do. It's hard to teach that. But uh, you want to pull it? That's fine. Drag two. How did you find that stat? Uh, we, we, we hunted it down. Mm-hmm. We, we went through everything. We dug, and then we figured out how to work it with 
um, you know, our own base percentage and everything. And um, But literally, we went through every single game. We broke it down halfway through the season two years ago. We were trying to find that leadoff hitter. His, his, his batting average wasn't great. His own base percentage was great. And we're, figure, and we're figuring out, like, man, he is tremendous. He never gets thrown out. He was probably 18 of 18 and still in bases. What in the world do we need to do to get him on base more? And uh, so we just started digging. We fell across, like, man, shoot. Every time he's on base, he scores. Literally, unless there's two outs. But he's always in scoring position because he can steal second base. So tremendous base runner, one of the best base runners I've ever coached. We got to figure out how to get him on base more. That swing that he's trying to launch balls with the launch angle, which is all kids know now, mm-hmm. right? When you're 16, that's what they're telling you. It ain't playing. You better have some bat speed. So anyway, long story short, we just uh, try to shrink things up for him, and he's he understands it now, and he knows that that's if we're going to win a conference championship this year, he better be on first base. I think you make an important point, letting kids know what their roles are. Because when you leave it to kids to figure it out for themselves, a lot of times they're not going to figure it out. We were playing at Samford early in the season one time, and I was 0 for 2 with a strikeout. 0 for 2, I struck out, grounded out, and walked twice. And Coach said to me after the game, uh, what do you think about your performance? And I was like, nah, you know, I didn't, I didn't do well, 0 for 2, whatever, struck out. And he said, you got on base twice. That's what I need. Half the times you went up to the plate, you got on base. That's what we want. Yeah. And it resonated. Yeah. My last question about synergy. When we were at the World Series, we noticed the shifts going on. And right. I said, are you guys doing that too? And you said, absolutely. Yeah. And I said, well, is it accurate? And you said. Play the bat. It is very accurate. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's incredible. Yes. So do you coach then players almost like bunning 20 minutes a day? Can you spend time to try to beat the shift, letting a ball get deeper on you yeah. so that you can go the other you, way with can. it? can. And I try to do, like, in inner squads, we'll, we'll shift guys over, and I want them to, you know, some guys just can't handle it. And the big, the bigger physical guys, they don't know what to do with themselves when it happens. And you'll see, like, I have to give credit to Bobby. I, I sat down with him in the offseason a couple of years ago. I was like, you need to teach me what you're doing. Because he's in charge of defensive positioning everywhere he goes. He's been doing it forever. He's been doing shifts before shifts were popular. He works with guys in Major League Baseball. Everyone has Harvard guys. They call them Harvard guys in the big leagues. It's Ivy League guys that that are paid to tell you where a baseball is going to go based upon percentages and spin rates and numbers, right? So, But he he gets baseball. And so he makes his own model, and he actually beats the model of everyone that tries to you know, go up against them. And um, so anyway, long story short, they meet about it before games. Philly was, a, they, I mean, he was with the Phillies last year. They made a big deal. But I sat down with Bobby in 2018 and I said, I need you to teach me what you're seeing, what you're doing. Just give me the basics, but give it to me. And so he would always say, listen, if, if they can't hit a baseball right here comfortably, why in the world are you playing straight up? Why are you playing a six foot five, 240 pound right-handed hitter? straight up with a second baseman, he ain't never hitting it there. You're going to make him extremely uncomfortable if you take your second baseman and put him on the other side of second base. And you got to play the bat. So why are you trying to make your shortstop make all of these plays? It doesn't make any sense. You're making one guy chase down ground balls for 120 feet. It does, he can't do it. 
but you put three people over there and they'll cover that 120 feet. And if you see, if that guy, as soon as you see, when that guy sees you slide over, he's thinking, I got to hit it this way. And he can't physically do it. The bat doesn't change. Mm. We get out the same way over and over and over and over and over again, especially physical bodies. That's what he keeps saying. Physical bodies don't hit backside singles. It don't matter what you do. Don't ever forget that. So I kept that to heart and it's real. It doesn't. And if they hit it that way, it's going to be very soft and one guy can make that soft play. That major league wisdom is so valuable, It's incredible. It's amazing. Okay, last question. I ask everyone this. If somebody dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? I would buy my, we would build a home immediately and I would take care of family members and I would definitely invest a little bit. What kind of investing? Uh, You know what? I probably would buy a couple of small businesses and, and try to make them, build them up. I would buy a pharmacy, coffee shop for my wife. And uh, buy her a restaurant and, or something like that. But we definitely do. She's a pharmacist. So we would, I always wanted to get her a coffee shop slash pharmacy because she would excel in that and have fun with it. And if we had a million dollars, then we could afford to do this. So <laughs> Very cool. We'd enjoy that. She would love it. Seth, I always enjoy chatting with you, yeah, man. Yeah, that was, that was fun. I so much appreciate what you've done for the Nichols program. Thank you. And you fostered a sense of community and made us feel like family. And it means a lot. Yeah. Thank you for everything well, you're doing. That's my responsibility. It's awesome. I appreciate it. Awesome. What's the best way for people to connect with you? And if Nichols, if listeners want to support the Nichols baseball program, where would you direct them? A couple of places. Uh, actually, Twitter. Um, I have a lot of people that reach out to me and direct message me on Twitter. And uh, so you can do that. You can email me. Um, my email address is on our website, gocolonels.com. That's G-E-A-U-X, colonels.com. We also have a website called colonelbaseball.com, C-O-L-O-N-E-L, baseball.com. Um, but on Twitter, I get a lot of direct messages and um, email uh, is, is huge. So I'm easy to get in touch with, and I take a lot of pride in responding right away. So I would love to chat with anyone. You do respond right away. I appreciate our friendship, man. Thank Absolutely. you for doing this. Thank you very much. Friends, thank you for tuning in. I never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us If you enjoyed this episode with Coach Tibb, please copy the link and share it with a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 